The podcast you're about to listen to may contain random lines from musical theater, terrible attempts at regional accents, and a sincere discussion about mental health. You have been warned. Are you ready to start singing with your feet? Formidable! Allez, c'est parti! Juste dans la joie Une joie profonde Nos cœurs, elle inonde Cette joie, elle vient du ciel Non, nous ne sommes pas fous Welcome to Sing With Your Feet. My name is Lily Fields and I'm going to be your fairy godmother for the next half hour or so. Today's podcast is going to be the last episode before September. I'll be on a bit of a hiatus while my boys are out of school, just like last year. But not to worry, summer will go fast. It always does. And the next thing you know, your fairy godmother will be back dishing out, not advice, advice. It's been a rocky few weeks here for your fairy godmother. What with the culmination of the Wool is Cool project that I've been working on and everything, that project, you might remember, started in September of 2021, with my kid being annoyed with me for wondering out loud every time we went to one specific little theme park that has a petting zoo, what do they do with the wool once they shear the sheep? And it finished yesterday with one final class of 10-year-olds sewing up the adorable little pouches that we wrapped up their gorgeous wool creations in. I've calculated it out, and I have spent 28 days this school year at my kids' school working with the about 180 kids in seven classes there, plus the 200 or so hours I spent working on the project at home. It was a pretty big deal, and with very few exceptions, I enjoyed every second of it. And not to brag or anything, but I'm pretty sure the kids and the teachers loved it too. Mother's Day is actually this weekend here in France, thus why I am still not done talking about Mother's Day. It is June 4th here, that's Mother's Day. So when yesterday I finished walking the class through sewing up their pouches, it was not a minute too early. So I am excited for those moms to receive their beautiful felted wool rose brooches in beautifully hand-sewn pouches that their children themselves sewed up. That's why the podcast is late this week, and I apologize. But on behalf of the 180 kids, seven teachers, three teachers' assistant, the director of the school, and all of the moms who will be receiving their beautiful gift this Sunday, thank you for your patience. I could not, though, in good conscience, take my summer hiatus without doing the one thing that I have been saying to myself that I would do since January, and that is reveal the rules that I set for myself for that pesky New Year's resolution that I've been trying very hard to keep. So this week, that's what I want to do. I also want to share a few of the reflections from these five full months of trying to live by the golden rule. First things first, the golden rule. What is the golden rule, you may ask? I'm pretty sure you know what it is, but let's say for argument's sake that you do not. The golden rule is shorthand for a way of life prescribed in the Bible. I know, I'm getting dangerously close to preachy hypocrisy territory when I say that, and you know by now that I 
am a hypocrite, and while I am not proud of this fact, it is one that I'm willing to admit because it takes the pressure off trying to pretend that I'm perfect all the time. So yes, the golden rule is a Bible thing, but it has also crept its way into our culture, so much so that a lot of people might not even realize that the Bible is where it all started. And it actually started in one of the weirdest chapters of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is where you're going to find a lot of the strange prescriptions that non-Bible people like to hold against Bible people because they're just weird. Like the how to find out if your wife has been sleeping around, have her drink a tincture made up of the dust off the floor of your house. If she gets sick, she was having an affair. And if not, she wasn't. There are other strange things in the book of Leviticus, some even weirder than that, and yet nestled in there in that same text is this. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. This verse is in there, I swear it, Leviticus 19.18. But that's not the only place it shows up, unlike the floor dust to jealousy relief cocktail, which thankfully only shows up that once. The other place that the golden rule shows up is when Jesus is being asked what the most important commandment is. First he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then he adds, and the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now I'm not gonna talk about that first part, the love your Lord your God, that, that part. I'm not ignoring that part, it's written there. So it definitely deserves consideration, but I'm not a scholar. I am simply not the right person and this is not the right format to talk about that. There are people who talk about that kind of thing way better than I ever will. In another place though, Jesus says this, in everything you do, do to others what you would have them do to you. This is very, very close to the love your neighbors as yourself thing, although it's not exactly the same, which suggests to me that it was one of his greatest hits that he kept coming back to again and again. A really important life hack, if you will. Like I said, I'm no Bible scholar, but I really do love life hacks. Anything that will make decision-making easier or make life easier, period, really is good for me. And the simplicity of the golden rule feels, to me at least, like one of those life hacks that might really work. When I was trying to claw my life back from the shock of having two children in very short order, I had very little use for impractical, poetic thoughts about motherhood. Even now, when things with my boys have eased up considerably, I roll my eyes at myself when I think like, remember these moments, and they grow up so fast. What I needed then was help, practical life help. Remember these moments does not help you know which of the two children in front of you needs more urgently to have their diaper changed, and it will not prevent me from appearing to favor one child over the other simply because one child cries louder and I would rather let the other one suffer a little longer just to get the crying one to stop crying, even if the non-crying one was more in need of my attention. If I had been living by the golden rule at that time, I probably would have done things differently, but I was not capable of living by the golden rule for a very important reason. I hated myself. When the golden rule says, love your neighbor as yourself, it assumes that we love ourselves. And there is no way, no conceivable healthy way to love others if we don't care and love ourselves first. 
We can do nice things for other people because we love them. We can serve them. We can serve others as a parent or as a spouse, for example, because we love them. But this is not the same thing as loving them as we love ourselves. For a very, very, very long time, I thought that love was the answer. I thought that if I just loved my husband enough, I would be a better wife. I thought that if I just loved my children enough, I would be a better parent. But every single day, I would come up short. I didn't love them enough. Love wasn't solving our problems. Love just wasn't cutting it. I couldn't understand why being a parent was so unbelievably difficult for me, beyond the hormones, beyond the constant urgency of having two small children. And then one day, I came across a verse that said that I needed to love my neighbor as myself. It stuck with me for a while. I would do lots of things for my children or for my husband that I would never do for myself. I did lots of things for other people that I wouldn't do for myself. Why would I not do these things for myself? Because I didn't love me. I'm not saying that we need to stop doing things for others. I want to make sure that's very clear. What we need to do is to start doing for ourselves the things that we do for others. I had to figure out for myself what this meant, and I needed something practical and actionable. The first concrete way I found to intentionally love myself was to tell myself that I needed to make life easier for my future self by doing something right now. I'm thinking specifically of the first time I had this inclination when I would push my eldest in a stroller and my youngest was in a baby sling and I would walk them around town. I had that backpack, the one I talked about a few episodes back with extra diapers, wipes, socks, and clothes for the little ones just in case. Inevitably, when it would be time to leave the house, I would have gotten everyone dressed for the outing and I would pick up that backpack and I would leave and then I would find once we were out that I had forgotten to restock the backpack after our last outing. It was always missing something that I needed. So one day, as we were arriving home after an outing, I told myself, make life easier for future you and restock that backpack right now. It took all of 30 seconds because I knew what I had used out of it right then. And so the next time we went out, I was so, so grateful for it. This, to many normal people, may sound like a perfectly normal thing to do. But because I was not normal at the time, this little step changed my life just a bit. Like we said when we were talking about gift giving, you are the person who knows best what you need. You are the person most apt to provide what you need because you know what you need. Now, I wouldn't go so far to say that during that time with the two babies, I knew exactly what I needed, but I was able to discern what might be a little bit helpful. And sometimes a little bit of helpful goes a long way. For all the talk about self-care out there today, for all those Mother's Day ads that are out there suggesting that what a woman needs is a day at the spa or a new necklace with her kids' names on them or some kind of kitchen gadget, it seems blatantly obvious to me that no one really understands what a mother really needs and that even if they did understand, no one out there really wants to bother providing a mother with what she really needs. Here's a truth about being a mother, 
and I think it's valid for women in general, there is nothing that we could buy that could ever provide us with what we need. I was talking about this with my indulgent husband when he asked me what I would like for Mother's Day. And what I realized is that a woman really needs someone to share the mental load, not just someone to help out, not someone who will start a load in the washing machine, but someone who will think ahead to make sure that whatever was put in that washing machine will get dried and put away, and that person won't start the washing machine if they don't have a plan to get it finished. Because it isn't helpful if the laundry just sits wet in the machine all day because there was no plan and no communication. Now, it would be fantastic if this carrying of the mental load could be without having to carry the emotional weight of the person who may or may not have helped carry out that mental load, whether that be excessive reminders that the person did help out or having to carry their guilt because they wouldn't help out. So essentially what I asked for from my husband for Mother's Day was to get me a wife or a servant or help of some kind. So where is it that he can go to buy sharing the mental load? Can he buy me a gift card for not carrying someone else's emotional baggage online? The short answer is no. Long answer is, we need as mothers to take our own needs seriously and to start doing little things for ourselves that will actually make a difference. We need to start doing things that will make future us say thank you. This is how we are going to start showing ourselves love in practical, meaningful ways. And doing this for ourselves is going to be how we will learn not just to do things because we love others, but to do for others what we would want done for us. Doing things because we love others is exhausting. It wears us out, especially when our own tanks are already dry. But doing for others what we would want done for us starts from the thought that my own desires deserve consideration because I love me. And then becomes, I want someone else to benefit from what I would desire for myself. These are very, very, very different, even if the outcome is identical. Considering what we would want done for ourselves is a step that reinforces our love for ourselves. And remember, we are to love others as we love ourselves. All these considerations and multitudes of thought experiments led me to want to try in the year 2023 to live by the golden rule. The objective was, on that big monopoly board that is life, as I make decisions about what I'm going to do, to continually be passing go in the form of asking myself, what would I want done for me in the same situation? As we've seen together, sometimes it means I would want absolutely nothing done for me. And sometimes it means I would take a bouquet of seasonal flowers. Sometimes it means sitting silently in the emergency room with a kid who did something that you have told him a million times not to do without saying, I told you so. But as with any time I undertake a New Year's resolution, I need rules. So here are the rules. Number one, if someone asks for something and my first reaction is to say no because I don't want to disrupt my own comfort, then I need to say yes and do then 
what I would want done for me. This rule is designed to combat my own inherent laziness. How many times in the early part of the morning does a child have to ask for something that he can't get for himself, but I am happily under the covers of my bed and don't want to get up? More times than I can count. So this rule is intended to address this. What would I want done for me if it's something that I couldn't do for myself? I would want someone to help me. It shows me that they love me and that my wants and needs are valid and important to them. So my job with this first rule is to make sure that when my own comfort is what's keeping me from helping, that I do end up getting out of bed. I want my kids to know that they were important enough for me to throw aside my covers with as few grumblings as possible to help them out. So number two, when my response is no because of a health or a safety issue, then I need to explain. To say the answer is no because I said so is incredibly tempting. I remember hearing it as a child and I felt dismissed by it. That answer had all kinds of consequences, including me pushing my limits and doubting my parents' authority. As a parent, I understand the inclination to give that answer and sometimes on the 300th time around the negotiating table, it is the only one that can stand. But I have found that when I have to say no because something is dangerous, either in the long term or in the short term, then I need to be upfront and honest about it. The issue of consent, which is one I'm working on with my boys, is one of these that keeps coming up. Health and safety isn't just about staying out of the emergency, although it's part of it. It's also about mental health. So when the boys start getting cavalier about their bodies and telling me about the way that some of their friends talk about or show their bodies, I have to tell them no, that this is not acceptable because their bodies are their own and that no one should be touching them or showing them their private parts. This isn't a question of physical safety. This is about questions of setting healthy boundaries. We can't stop other kids from doing what they do but we can stop ourselves from doing things that are unhealthy. When I have had to explain this to my boys, why they're to keep their private parts to themselves, I've had to be honest and say that there are people in the world who have bad intentions and they hurt children. And I want my children to be accustomed to saying, no, I don't show my private parts to anyone. And this, my children understand instinctively. Sometimes I'm unsure of how in-depth I need to go into my explanations, but I find that the basic truth usually satisfies them. They can practice saying this to their friends if they have to, should the topic come up. My children then don't feel dismissed, and they understand that I am saying no, not because I don't love them, but because I want them to be safe. Rule number three. When I have said yes after saying no, I need to make sure I make it about connection and not just action. This sounds confusing, and you might notice that there is a recurring theme here, that is that Lily Field says no a lot to her children, and you would be correct. Although with adults, I struggle terribly to say no for some reason. No seems to be the first word out of my mouth with my children. So there are times when I will initially say no. It happens. This often happens in the morning when it's time to leave and my littlest one decides he still wants to be a baby and have me put his shoes on for him. So when I decide, for expediency's sake, that I will put his shoes on for him after saying, not will I ever put your shoes on for you, you are big enough, this rule ensures that I do it and don't just shove the shoes on his feet. Instead, I am to look at him in the eye and connect with him. Talk about something, anything that makes sure that we were both smiling and enjoying this moment together. 
it's probably one of the most exhausting items on the list of rules. Rule number four, if it takes less than a minute, do it now. I feel like I might have gotten this one from the great Gretchen Rubin. It's a way to encourage myself to do the little things that often slip through the cracks, that take very little time, and that can make a big difference. So instead of grumbling when I find a toothbrush on the couch, exactly, of course, where it should be, right? I should take the 20 seconds necessary to put it back in the bathroom where it will be found the next time some young person needs to brush his teeth. These are the things that I will thank myself for later and that probably no one else will ever realize that I did. But I just do it. I don't worry about my kids learning bad habits. I just do it. Make everyone else's lives easier. And it's really a revolutionary way to love others and to love myself. So rule number five, let other people know when I'm thinking about them. This is about just writing a text message to a person that I'm thinking about, not a 20 minute phone call, just a note. I love it when people do that for me and don't expect anything in return. I don't often have the time to call the people I love, but being able to shoot off a quick message is as close as I can get. It's not perfect, but it's what's working this year. Rule number six, do small, insignificant, but meaningful gestures of attention. This is what we talked about earlier this year about sending the elevator back for someone who might be coming up after, or putting the toothpaste on someone's toothbrush who will be brushing their teeth around the same time I will. It's about holding the door open an extra second just so that someone else can walk through. These aren't important things. They don't deserve thank yous. They're insignificant, yet meaningful. Rule number seven, explain things patiently. <laughs> this is one because I can get a tone of voice with my family that no one else in my life even suspects that I'm capable of. And it's actually kind of embarrassing. It's an annoyed tone of voice, one that sounds like, I have said this to you already 100 times and I hate it that I have to say it again. That's what that tone of voice feels like. No, my goal with this is that I would want someone always to be patient with me, no matter how many times they have to explain something. So my job is to always explain things patiently. I have, on occasion, had that mental fog roll in and I will forget what someone right in front of me has just said. It's terribly embarrassing. And the worst possible thing that could happen would be that someone would get irritated with me for it. I don't do it on purpose. I really don't. So knowing that I would want someone to be patient with me on the first and on the 400th time, I need to make sure I am behaving that way too. Rule number eight, ask for help when I need it. I do not ask for help well. My children are programmed to come to me for help when they need it. Why? Because I have been reliably able to provide them with assistance since the day they were born. When I stop to think about this, the fact that my children know they can ask me for help because I have mostly throughout their lives been able to help them out, it feels like a huge honor. I am their trusted go-to person. Knowing that this is how I feel when they ask me for help, would it not make sense that others might feel the same way should I ask them for help? I want people to see me as a trusted go-to person. I like being that person. I want people to ask me for help. But there's a little barb on the golden rule. If I want to do for others what I want others for, to do for me, it means that I have to be vulnerable and ask for help. So this year, I've been trying to ask for help when I need it. 
I did it a few weeks ago. The teachers at my boys' school asked me if I would be willing to, over their lunch hour, teach them how to do the wool crafts that I've been doing with their students, and I was delighted to do it. But it didn't feel like it would be any fun to hang out with adults teaching them how to do crafts with my own children hanging on. And I usually take my own kids home for, from school for lunch. So I asked another mom who also takes her kids home at lunch if she would be willing to welcome my boys just that one day. I was incredibly uncomfortable asking, but when she said yes, it was amazing to realize that I had a trusted go-to person. I didn't have any intention of ever asking her again, but it did something pretty amazing in my heart and in my soul to know that I had someone nearby who would do something like that for me. Rule number nine, give undivided attention. I very strongly dislike sharing attention. I do not like having a 30-second interaction with someone at the store who is simultaneously on the phone, no matter how apologetic they seem to be for the interruption. If this is true of me, then I need to be sure that I'm always ready to give undivided attention or to be able to explain why I can't give it and when I might be able to. This is, yet again, valid mostly with my family. So my goal this year is to not share my attention with a device and a family member at the same time. Learning to say, I cannot give you my full attention right now. Let me send this message and then I will be all yours. Well, it's not heroic by any means, but it beats trying to send a message while a child is pulling on my arm wanting me to play charades. I want my attention to be full and undivided. If I cannot give that, then I need to articulate why and make it my business to do only one thing at a time. And finally, rule number 10, speak kindly to and of others. This is mostly because I don't like hearing people speak badly of others, no matter what they've done. So this year, I'm making it my business to only comment on things that I have something kind to say about. I'm certainly not batting a thousand on this, but I'm trying. And the truth is that in doing all of these things, these 10 rules, I've actually found a lot of joy. This New Year's resolution of living out the golden rule was, in part, because selfishly, I really believed there would be something in it that would help me love me better. On the outside, it looks like doing a lot of things for other people, which, don't get me wrong, it is. But it is also a lot of thinking about what I would want done for me. Like I said earlier, making a regular stop on that big Monopoly board which asks, what would I want done for me? if I were in the same position, forces me to reflect on my own desires. Just take a second and think about that because every so often it surprises me too. What is it that you want? Do you even know what your heart's deepest desire it is? A while back, I shared with you that when I was asked what I wanted for Christmas, I couldn't come up with an answer right away. But when I really thought about it, I realized that what I wanted was more time more hours in a day to get around to doing the things that I love to do, more time to write, more time to make music, more time to be crafty. So when I get irritated with my little boy who won't put his shoes on in the morning, 
something he is perfectly capable of doing and he should, at his age, be doing. Part of what irritates me is that he's wasting time. Not that in the 30 seconds it takes me to put on his shoes that I would actually be able to sit down and write a chapter of anything, but that it feels like he is throwing that precious commodity that I cherish out the window. That is what irritates me. It's not the act of putting on his shoes. I know that I cannot stock up on time the way I stock up on coins that I might find on the ground. When time is gone, it's gone. So my heart receives his request for me to put his shoes on as a demand to put money into a broken snack machine that doesn't make change either. He's using up what is precious to me for no return on my investment for me. Except that, as we know, the golden rule is not about getting others to do something. It's about us doing what we would want done for us in the same situation. I cannot stock up on time to do the things I love to do. So I need to accept this reality and start singing with my feet. I need to look at the situation differently. So aside from stocking up on lost time, what would I want done for me in a similar situation? Taking into consideration that child and his state of mind at the time, I would want someone to invest their full attention on me and help me to do that one thing that right now feels like one bridge too far for me to do myself. Sometimes actually doing what I would want done for me is the expeditious option. And in this case, it's a win-win. The problem with the golden rule is that we can get to a point where we start to wish that there was an upside to doing all of this stuff for others. Now, over the last few months, I have shared with you the few times that it really has had an upside. The unexpected flower bouquet or the kid that gave me unexpected snuggles. But it is a lot of giving and not always very much receiving. It's exhausting. What I have found is that the moment I start wondering where the upside to all this doing is, is the moment I start losing the plot. If I am doing for others what I want done for me in the hopes or in the expectation of someone actually doing it for me, then I'm putting my hopes on the wrong person. I cannot control what someone else does or how they react to any situation. The only person's behavior I have the tiny, tiniest bit of authority over is my own. And when I'm in a good headspace, it honestly just feels virtuous to do for others what I would want done for me. It's the attitude that determines the outcome. As soon as I start to have the expectation, my attitude becomes wrong and I become dissatisfied. The golden rule is not transactional. It is an investment. Something else we've talked about before is guilt. Guilt, that feeling of having done something wrong or disappointed someone else's expectations. Doing things out of guilt, as we've said a million times, is never the right reason to do anything. That doesn't mean we won't sometimes do things that we don't want to do. But we've said that duty and guilt are not the same thing. Duty is something that we do because we have a real responsibility, not an imagined responsibility. Passing our actions through the grid of the golden rule can help us straighten out the difference between the two. Back in September, I visited an elderly woman at the nursing home. When I was ready to leave, she said to me rather authoritatively, I would like you to come visit me every week from now on. Now, I tend to have trouble saying no to people, but this request was one with which I knew I couldn't comply. Not only did I not want to go visit this woman every week, I barely knew her. I couldn't just go to visit her every week. It was far enough away that I couldn't just pop by for a few minutes without moving around everything 
on my calendar for a day. Without finding childcare, my schedule wouldn't permit me to take on another weekly activity. I didn't commit. Somehow, I got out of there before committing, thank goodness. But as I passed this request through the grid of the golden rule, I was able to put legs under my discomfort and resistance to her request. I understand that this woman feels alone. Her family doesn't visit her. As a matter of fact, she spent quite a bit of time explaining to me that her children don't want to visit her and that all the ungrateful people she has helped her out in her life, they don't want to visit her either. What she wants is for people to visit her and she is ready to make people who have no relation to her feel guilty for not wanting to visit her. I have no responsibility for her, no relation to her. I have no duty to clear my day once a week, nor do I have any desire to do so. If I were in her position, I would want people to come visit me too. No, what I would want would be for people to want to come visit me. I would not want someone to come visit me because they felt obligated to. I would not want anyone to come weekly to see me out of guilt. The last thing in the world I would want would be for someone to have to pay a babysitter to take care of their children so that they could come visit me or for someone to put aside their budding literary career to come visit me. So what would I want done for me in her situation? I would want my children to want to visit me even though they can't. I would want people who want to visit me to want to visit me, whether or not they could. So the golden rule told me two things. Number one, I have no duty to do anything for this woman. And number two, that a near stranger who only comes to visit me because I have guilted her into coming is not someone I would want a visit from. So I did nothing. I sent her a New Year's card and that was the end of it. This was a bit of a call of action to me. Do you know what I learned? I learned that I need to be the kind of person that someone would want to visit in a nursing home. It means that how I treat the people I love today and the friendships that I build now are the ones that will ultimately determine if anyone ever visits me. It means that I need to be someone with healthy relationships and especially with my own children. And eventually, one day, I need to be someone who has a good relationship with her children's spouses. I need to be someone people want to talk to, someone who listens well and provides sage counsel and knows when to shut up when it's time to shut up. I need to get to work on this because I ain't getting any younger. So just to wrap up, here are three reflections that I have so far made from trying to live out the golden rule. First, that things that make living out the golden rule difficult are often the things that seem like they are in conflict with my deepest desires. Number two, that the golden rule is not transactional. It is an investment. And third, that the golden rule can help us sift through the confusion between guilt and duty when it's time to say no. This summer, I want you to think about your virtue wheel, thinking about how you want to be remembered after you're gone. Keep chipping away at the little decisions that can help you become that person that you are in all of your ideal life statements. Every day, answer those four little questions. What is working? What isn't working? What do I need to think about? What can I do today to get me closer to my ideal life? And when you can, before you make any decisions, ask yourself, what would I want done for me in this same situation? And I will talk to you again in September. 
I want to give a great big thank you to Seven Productions here in Toulouse, France for the use of the song La Joie as the intro and outro to the show, to Matt Kugler who sang it, and to Claude Equay who wrote it. This is your fairy godmother signing off for the summer. Just remember, it is never too late to start singing with your feet.